0: Christ. It's the last book of the Bible. It's actually the title of the last book of the Bible, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book about Jesus. He's the subject. He's the content. He's the focus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we saw last week that it literally uh, is titled The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now that's a word that means something different Uh, today for most English readers than it does for the original word in the language, but it simply means the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the disclosure of Jesus Christ. And what happens in the book of Revelation is the Holy Spirit opens up these windows into heaven, these windows into the future, these windows into unseen realities, things that you cannot perceive with your physical eyes. But as, it, as the Holy Spirit opens these windows and we see Jesus for who he really is, our lives will be changed. We'll be inspired to worship him, not the beast and the seductive powers of the world. We'll be inspired to worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our passion. We'll be inspired and to receive everything we need for the circumstances we face in life. Whether we need encouragement, whether we need strength, whether we need comfort, whether we need purity, whatever the need is, will happen when we, when we have eyes to see the Jesus of heaven. And so this morning what we're going to do, we saw that uh, we could call this book Windows 96 because uh, in 96 AD the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John And the Holy Spirit revealed these windows into unseen realities. And this morning we're going to look at the very first window. And we're going to see who Jesus truly is. And we're going to allow him to change our lives when we have eyes to see and ears to hear his word to us. So the screen you can open up your Bible or else you can follow along on screen as we read this first passage, this first window that's open. Before the window is opened... John is going to identify himself, and he's going to speak to his uh, audience, his readers, and he's going to speak to us as well. But in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 20, the Holy Spirit speaks this word, these words. John, he's the author. Now stop and think about that for a moment. The beloved disciple of Jesus, he spent three years walking, talking, being with Jesus around the clock. He saw Jesus in his earthly ministry do things that people had never seen done on the planet before, walking on water, healing lepers, raising people from the dead, feeding multitudes from a, from a plate lunch. He, he saw, and he even had a glimpse, remember John was one of the disciples who had a glimpse of Jesus' heavenly glory when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he's going to see something much fuller at this point in his life. He saw something of Jesus' earthly, well, he saw his earthly ministry. Now he's gonna see a fuller measure of, of Jesus' earthly majesty. That's the author under the Holy Spirit. That's the man the Holy Spirit chose to reveal these windows to. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. He wrote in a particular historical situation to seven churches, but beyond those seven churches, there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. So I think the idea is more than just those... He was writing to much more than those seven churches, to the completion. Seven is the number of completion. And behind those specific seven churches, the idea of the complete church, including New Hope Kailua. But we'll get there in a moment. That's who he's writing to. And then he speaks a blessing. And catch this. He speaks a blessing from the triune God, from every member of the Godhead. Grace and peace to you from him who is... The self-existent Father, the one who is and who was and who is to come because he's self-existent, he's eternal. From the Father and from the sevenfold Holy Spirit. And he says, and from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, that's an expression that speaks of the sevenfold ministry of the one Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he speaks a blessing to us. From the triune God, the self-existent Father, the sevenfold spirit, the sovereign king of kings, because Jesus is in charge of every earthly political leader. And then he says this. To him who loves us, a word of adoration, a word of doxology, a word of praise to Jesus to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, his sacrificial life-giving love, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Don't miss that. We're going to see he reveals himself as heaven's king and heaven's priest, and he's brought us into his family and made us part of his royal servant families of kingdom of, of, of uh, princes and princesses and, and priests serving God and Father. He says, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then he speaks about a key theme, just in a sentence, a key theme of the book, the return of Jesus Christ. Look, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. This will be a worldwide event. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. And that's validated by the eternal, sovereign God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the alphabet, the end of the alphabet, everything between. I am the self-existent, eternal, all-powerful God who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. Now it's not until verse 9 that we get the vision. And John shares with us how he experienced this. This was a real-life experience. If you look carefully and read carefully what he shares with us, This was just not some kind of a dream that happened when he... No, this was a real life experience. He heard a voice, he turned around, he recognized the voice, he saw images. This was a real life experience that changed his life, will change our lives. He says, I, John, your brother, your brother in the family of God. He was an apostle, but he was a brother and a companion in the suffering. He understood what it meant to suffer for his faith for Jesus. And the kingdom, the rule of Jesus on earth and in his life. And patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. He says, I was on the island of Patmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of his faith in Christ, he was exiled. On the Lord's day, on the day of worship. On Sunday, the day that Jesus had risen from the dead. I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And you're going to see throughout his, he shares of of the windows being open, what he sees and tries to communicate. He's going to say, it was like this. It was like this. It was like this. He's trying to find earthly symbols and images to describe the heavenly realities he saw. It was like a trumpet, which said this, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and New Hope Kailua. Send it to New Hope Kailua. Is that in your Bible? It's in mine. (laughs) He sent it to all the churches. Write it down and send it to the churches. I turned around. He actually heard a voice. I turned around to hear that voice, to see that voice who was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw, and here's the vision of the glorified, risen Jesus. Here's the windows being opened in heaven, and John sees with his own eyes something of the glory, of the power, of the beauty of the risen, glorified Jesus, the one he had walked with, the one he had known on earth, but the one now he sees his majesty in heaven. And he says this. He uh, describes the experiences. He says this. When I turned, I saw seven golden Lampstands. Now we're going to see those lampstands represent churches. He's going to tell us that at the end of his vision. Seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was, catch this, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. He sees his clothes and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Notice that. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So he shares this vision That He's given as the windows of heaven are opened up and he sees the risen, glorified Jesus. And what's his response? When I saw him, he's overwhelmed. He's awestruck. He's blown out of the water. He falls flat on his face and so would you and I. I fell at his feet as though dead. Then what did Jesus do? He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one I was dead and now look I am alive forever and ever and catch this I hold the keys of death and Hades Hades is the place of the underworld the grave the place where dead people go all of that is in Jesus power write therefore what you have seen what is now and what will take place later the mystery of the seven stars here's where he identifies the stars and the lampstands. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say, okay, we get it. The lampstands represent the churches, but the stars represent the um, angels of the seven churches. Now, the word actually means messenger, and it can be interpreted as a human messenger. But it also can be interpreted as a spiritual being from heaven, angelic messengers. And as people have studied this, um, there are two different views on that. It could mean um, that he was addressing the uh, the messengers to each of the churches, the human messengers, which we could identify with the preaching pastors, those who were given the message and went to, to uh, share it and in uh, read it and expound it to the churches. The, sort of the preaching pastors of the churches were the angels. Now I kind of like that one because um, Martha tells me once in a while that I'm an angel. <laughs> so as a preaching pastor of New Oak Kailua, maybe, no. But I actually prefer the rendering and I wouldn't, uh, I can see meaning to both of these. That um, there is a actual heavenly being angel that's entrusted to each church to guard that church, to guard the message of that church. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, I think there's more textual support for that interpretation because everywhere else in the book of Revelation, when it talks about an angel, it's a heavenly angel. And so uh, good reason to believe that, that this is probably that uh, New Hope Kailua and every church may be assigned an angel for the ministry of God's word, for the ministry of, of representing Christ, And um, I think it's a wonderful thing to think. I've never seen him, but um, it could well be one of the unseen realities that God entrusted a spiritual angel, a heavenly being for each church to guard and protect and enhance and build the ministry of that church. Um, One of those unseen realities, just like we understand he has a guardian angel for each one of our lives. Because we don't see these spiritual realities, but they're all around us. And... um, That uh, is is a very meaningful description of part of the ministry. One of the things that that challenges me is to say, well, what about those churches that you knew at one time preached the word, preached the truth of Christ, but have long lost the truth, but are still meeting? I could give you examples of churches and organizations that have lost their witness. What happened to their angel? I don't know. I just know there's a spiritual battle, as Paul says, uh, in the heavenly places, and angels are a, a part of that. But we want to be a church family that holds true to God's word, that preaches the word, that holds to the truth, that shares the message of Jesus and and the truth of the scriptures as God has revealed them, and and trust God and whatever angelic forces he keeps to be at work in our church. So there's the vision. But I want us to notice before we look at... um, how that vision will change our lives this morning. That's where we're headed. How will a vision of the glorified Christ change you and change me? We're going to look at two significant ways in which we'll do that. But first of all, I want us to recognize what's going on in this passage. And yes, we see to understand the book of Revelation accurately and read it rightly, we need to start and realize it was written to a particular historical situation. Now, it's the Word of God to us. But we won't understand it rightly unless we understand it who wrote it initially and what was going on in that historical circumstance and what are the meanings of these terms before the Holy Spirit applies those things to our lives. We recognize that this book was written, inspired by the Apostle Paul, uh, by the Apostle John, when he was in his mid-80s, at 96 AD. And um, it was written to these churches in what is... Today, modern-day Turkey, and I just want to put up a slide so that you will have a visual of what was going on at that time in history. So I hope you can see that, but you see on the island of Patmos, it's fairly small, but out 40 miles from the the mainland of what was then Asia Minor, the Roman province of Anatolia in the day, but what is modern-day Turkey, you have seven historical churches. Now, there were more churches than that in in, um, Asia Minor. There was the Church of Colossae. We got a letter in the scriptures to the Colossians. They're not one of the historical... So there were more churches there, and I think that's reason for us to realize this is written to the completion of churches. And seven churches, historical churches, are mentioned, but it goes way beyond that to the number of completion, the complete church of Jesus Christ, including New Hope Kailua. The second slide has... um, The same thing, it will show you the seven churches of Revelation. John's 40 miles out at sea, exiled on the island of Patmos, and we'll see why. But here um, we have a coin. And that coin represents what was going on when the Apostle Paul was inspired to write the book of Revelation. On the coin, you'll see it's actually uh, an infant But that infant is Domitian's son. Domitian was the Roman emperor at the time that John was writing. He was the Roman emperor that was persecuting the Christians. He was the Roman emperor who exiled John to the island of Patmos, who was persecuting Christians. And um, he has his son on this coin. And if you uh, could read the inscription on the coin, it says this. The divine... Caesar son of Emperor Domitian that's what it says on the coin it's a picture of his son and he's seated on the globe which is a picture of him ruling over the earth ruling over the globe but not only is he ruling over the globe you can see seven stars that he's holding out in his hands so your lunch money if you lived in that day pictured Domitian this is his son but if his son is the son of the divine Caesar then Domitian himself is God. That's what the Roman emperor cult said. The Roman uh, emperor is God and you must worship him. And we'll see in a minute that that's why John was in persecution because he wouldn't worship Domitian as God. And so we've got this coin that even your lunch money would, would declare that Domitian is God. And um, the seven stars, the background to that in the culture was the the Greeks had actually discovered the seven planets. And uh, the Romans had picked that up. The Greeks thought the seven planets exercised cosmic powers over the world. And so people would read them like people today. Some people read the horoscopes to try and get a word from uh, the authorities of the universe of what's going on. That was the Greek idea. The Romans took it. And on this coin, he's saying, no, it's my son. It's the Caesar who rules the heavens who rules the seven stars. So it's a picture of Domitian's son, who was the self-identified God, we'll see in a moment, ruling over the earth, ruling over the cosmic powers, right on the coins that they had. Now, that was the context in which uh, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. The next picture shows modern-day temple in Ephesus. If you go to Ephesus, the modern-day town today, one of the churches addressed. There's the remains of a temple to, M- F- to uh, Domitian, where you would actually go and worship the emperor. Now that's all that's left today, and it's kind of a picture that earthly empires only end up with broken down blocks. So, But just to show that it was a historical site, they know from archaeology what the temple likely looked at. The next slide will give you an artist rendering, based on the archaeological stuff, of what the temple may have looked like, based on the foundations, the columns, the things they have founded, it might have looked something like this. It was an impressive building. The point is, if you were a Christian living in Ephesus in John's day, people would go up and they would worship the emperor at a majestic building like this. One more artist rendering and then we'll move on, because this sort of captures something that was going on in that world. Uh, There's another artist rendering. It was a magnificent building. With the idea of people going up and worshipping the emperor who was self-identified as God. Now here's the interesting thing. And it's it's sort of a... You think and I think sometimes our politicians today have big egos. Domitian... uh, uh, required people to worship him as God, and that's why John was persecuted. That's why Christians were persecuted. He referred to himself as Domini a Deus, Lord and God. That's how he referred to himself. Now, the interesting thing is, in the Roman world, if you study Roman history, um, the emperors were considered gods, but not until they died. When they died, then the Senate's job was to say, let's deify, let's glorify that... uh, that, um, uh, emperor as God. Domitian took it to another level. He, before, he couldn't wait till he was dead. He says, while I'm alive, you need to recognize that I'm God. <laughs> I mean, talk about a megal- megalomaniac. He thought he was God. He thought his son was God. And not only that, he sent out edicts that people must worship him as God. And so what you would be required to do is to go one up to the magnificent temple. And if you were a Roman citizen, it wasn't that big a deal. You just take a pinch of incense, you throw it on the altar, and you declare, Kaiser curios, Caesar is Lord. No problem for a Roman citizen. Why? Because they were polytheists. They had many gods. Just add another god to your midst. The emperor thinks he's God? No problem. You know, Zeus is a god, Jupiter's a god, Uh, Diana's a god, Artemis is a god. we got all these gods. Why not? What's the problem with just adding one more? No problem. For John, it was a problem. (laughs) He could not just take a pinch of incense, throw it on the altar, and say, Kairos, curios, Caesar is Lord. For John, no. There's one Lord. There's one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And I'm not gonna worship any other force or person or power other than Jesus. And so for for Christians and for John to take their faith seriously, they could not obey the edict of the emperor. And because of that and other reasons, they were persecuted. So John, even though he's in his 80s, he's exiled 40 miles off, away from his loved ones, away from his family, away from his church, away from his ministry, and he's left to rot on an island where the Romans sent people into work camps to work the quarries for the roman empire and in that situation persecuted for his faith the holy spirit says john i want to reveal who jesus truly is i want to show you what's going on in heaven i want to show you what's about to happen in future events and it will change your life just like it will change our lives and so, yes, uh, John was persecuted. The churches, we're going to read in chapter 2 and 3 what was going on. John is exiled on Patmos. He's suffering for his faith in Jesus. The churches, they're going through all sorts of stuff as you read, and we're going to go through each uh, church because the Lord has a message for each of us in those churches. But the churches were experiencing persecution. The persecution was tampering up under Domitian's realm. Um, The church was experiencing heresy. There was false teachers infiltrating the church. And the church was experiencing immorality. Now, sexual immorality was rampant in first century culture. And it was often mixed with religion. And that was seeping into the church, we'll see. And yes, there was complacency. There were people just sort of going through the motions, and uh, maybe dropping off, um, and and not being involved, and and not meeting together, and not worshiping. There was complacency in the church. You read about that all in the seven churches. And so, what happens in that historical context? Well, in a church where, in a culture where there was persecution for Christians. Um, The Lord said, Jesus said to John, um, strike a political task force and uh, get more representatives in government and and, uh, move uh, legally for civil liberties. Now, those may be all good things, but that's not what Jesus does. And in a church that was facing heresy, false teaching within the church, the Lord might have said to John, hey, get all the six churches and you can't be there, but have a Bible conference. And get some apostolic prophets and teachers and preach the word and, and correct false doctrine. And, and that might have been a really good thing to do. But that's not what Jesus tells John to do. And in a church that was facing immorality, and where sexual immorality was happening in the churches, he might have said, you know what, we've got to get some discipleship programs. And the Lord might have said to John, you need to organize people into small groups and you need to have accountability and you need to teach um, God's measures of sexual standards in a detainee, but that's not what he does. Now those might be all good things to do, but as I thought about it this last week, that's not what Jesus does. And a church that was facing complacency. The Lord may, might have said to John, hey, get your worship teams together. Have a conference, develop song leaders and worship leaders and help stir people's passion so that we love them with all of our hearts and all of our beings and And that would be a wonderful thing to do. But that's not what the Lord tells John to do. What the Lord tells John to do is look. Look at who I am. And he reveals himself and he discloses himself in all of his heavenly majesty, in all of his glory. And I believe that when we have eyes to see who Jesus truly is, that unseen spiritual person, who invites us into his throne room, as we sang this morning, then he'll change our lives. Because he's the solution. And yes, programs and ministries and all of those things are are good things, but ultimately, this passage tells us Jesus is the solution. And so that's why in that historical situation, whatever historical situation you and I are in, and we live in a different culture and a different age with some different challenges, but all of the challenges those first century churches are happening in churches today, modern version, the solution is Jesus. The solution is to have eyes to see as Jesus has revealed his heavenly, majestic, glorified, king, priest, lover of heaven. To lay hold of who he is, to have eyes to hear, eyes to see, and ears to hear his message to us. So that's what we want to do. Let's take a moment and just look at a vision of the risen Christ. Let's examine how uh, Jesus sought to unveil himself to John and to us, because he uses a series of powerful images. And um, let me just speak about that for a moment because this is a very powerful way in which he communicates to us, but sometimes we totally miss it because we don't understand the symbols. Now let me just share with you a symbol and I'll ask the, uh, the first symbol to come up on a screen and ask you, what does this symbol mean? Well, some of us from social studies classroom, that's the symbol of communism. Now it's just a symbol, but if I were to ask you what the hammer means and what the sickle means, probably most of us, wouldn't know. We weren't raised communists. It's been a while since communism in Russia at least has been happening. I actually had to Google it this last week and, and discovered the hammer uh, represents the, um, the working class and the sickle represents the peasants and the working class and the peasants, the proletariat came together in unity against the, uh, the elite against the powers, against the aristocracy that was there in Russia at the time. So for for people that that may have lived in that culture, it's a very meaningful symbol. For most of us, we'd have to Google it to find out what the symbols mean. Here's one other one just to make the point. Uh, The second symbol is the, uh, the, uh, the national symbol of China. I have no idea what those symbols mean. What does the big star mean? What do the four stars mean? Why is the house there? What's, why is there, if you can see carefully, there's sheaves of wheat around the thing? There's all these symbols. They were chosen because they have meaning, but I don't know what they mean. I'm not going to take the time to explain them. You can Google them. The point is simply this. Symbols have meanings, and they have deep and powerful meanings, and the Holy Spirit has revealed Who Jesus is in a series of powerful images. One last one, because this one you will identify with, and again, it points out the power of a symbol. This one I get. Okay, the stars and the stripes, the flag, that's the United States of America. Now, if you were raised in Papua New Guinea, you probably had no idea that stars and stripes stood for the... But you and I get that. We understand the symbol. But it's far more than just a flag. We've got, this is Iwo Jima. This is uh, Marines and Navy men, and, and they're hoisting a flag, and it represents a powerful strategic victory in this terrible war that went on in the Pacific. It's full of meaning, and, and many of us understand that. And it brings um, a sense of pride and, and, and uh, patriotism to us when we see that symbol. It's, it's a powerful symbol. But you've got to know what the, what the parts of the image are or else you'll never understand the symbol. So that's the challenge when we come to the symbols that we see as John opens them in heaven because some of them are symbols from the Old Testament. But if we haven't read and understood and, and grasped the Old Testament, we, we may not understand the meaning of those symbols as they reveal who Jesus is. Some of them we've seen are symbols that were happening in the culture the seven stars. And some of them are self-evident symbols. Um, And so let's look at them one by one. And the whole point of this is to try and grasp, to have eyes to see, the heavenly majesty of the risen Jesus. So the first thing that we see, and you can follow along in your notes, and I've kind of summarized for and given you some key scriptures so that we can enter into the majesty of who Jesus is. He sees, he, John sees one like a son of man. Well, that was a key term based on Daniel's vision. Centuries earlier, Daniel had had a vision of this heavenly, glorious, powerful king who was in the image of a man. He was a son of man. But he was a heavenly king in all of his glory and authority. Let me just read to you that passage. It's not there in your notes, but you can read it later. In my vision, this is Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. At night I looked, and there before me was what? One like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, all of the glory of the clouds of heaven behind him. He approached the Ancient of Days, the eternal God, and was led into his presence, and catch this, he, the Son of Man, was given authority, He was given glory. He was given sovereign power. And all nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. He's the son of man, but they worship him. His dominion, his rule, is an eternal dominion. It's an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom, his rule, is one that will never be destroyed. This is an eternal kingdom. So the first thing he sees is, Daniel's vision of this heavenly, majestic, powerful king. But then the next thing he sees is his clothes. He sees a robe and a golden sash. Now, think about that for a moment. Clothes are a clue to a person's identity. If you were to see a woman dressed in a white lab coat with a stethoscope, what would it say? She's a doctor. If you were to see a man in a dark uniform and a shiny badge on his chest, you'd say, that's a policeman. Because their clothes are a clue to identity. Now you and I can read this and it says, a robe and a golden sash. To John's readers, to people who understand the Old Testament, he's the high priest. This is the robe of the high priest. And the references there in, in Exodus 28 and verse 4. What's significant about that? This heavenly king is also, he's, he's the high priest. He's our high priest. And what does that mean? The significance of that is he is our perfect representative and our perfect offering for sins. And the references are there in your notes. I won't take the time to read them, but the, the, the writer to the Hebrews writes kind of a commentary of the significance of Jesus. Our He's identified by his clothing as our high priest. He's our perfect high priest. He He became like us, so he understands what it means to have weakness. He was tempted in uh, in every way that you and I are, but without sin. And yes, he was the holy, pure, perfect one who gave his life on the cross once for all. All the other high priests, they would offer sacrifices all the time for their sins, for the sins of the people, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. Not Jesus. (laughs) He's the perfect high priest. He offered one sacrifice for all for eternity. And so, this heavenly king is also our high priest, and he's our perfect representative, and he's our perfect offering for sin, and that's part of his glory. But he goes on, the robe and the sash, it says, uh, he truly, I just have to read this verse, such a high priest, this is Romans chapter seven, verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, Pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all. He's the majestic son of man. Heaven's powerful, glorious king. He's our king priest. Then it says he had hair white like wool and here again the uh, references there the ancient of days the eternal god himself in Daniel's vision was pictured as having hair that was white as wool here this risen jesus shares in the same attributes as the eternal ancient of days and yes it speaks of Of dignity, of agelessness, ancient of days, beyond days, eternal. Of dignity, of wisdom, and yes, of purity. All of this is involved in this image. It's a very powerful image. The ancient of days, well, in Daniel's context, he saw the the empire of Babylon and the powerful Nebuchadnezzar. And then that crumbled. And then the Medo-Persian empire ruled the earth. And then that crumbled. And then the Greek, under Alexander the Greek, conquered the world. And the Greeks were the empire of the world. And then that crumbled. And then Rome came along. And in John's day, Rome is the world's superpower. His, and it crumbled. And it crumbled. And the British Empire. And the United States of America. And maybe China. Because world empires, they rise up and they pass in front of the Ancient of Days. And let us have that perspective. That we're simply one short period of but. The heavenly king is the ancient of days. Empires come and go. Kings come and go. Political rulers come and go. And the ancient of days is on the throne, and his heavenly king-priest rules from heaven. This is the image that Jesus is unveiling about himself. He has eyes like blazing fire. Eyes are the instrument of sight. He sees into your life. He sees into the churches. He sees into my life. And he sees with penetrating insight and purifying insight. Because the other thing that fire does, wherever fire goes, it purifies, right? It gets rid of bad stuff. And he looks into our lives with penetrating insight. He sees everything. He's going to speak to the churches. He looks into the churches. He looks, But he has a penetrating. He knows everything about me. He knows everything I'm going through. He knows everything that's going on in New Hope Kailua. And he knows everything that's going on in his church because he sees with pure and penetrating insight. And he has feet like glowing bronze. Now again, this is in contrast, if you know the vision that was given Nebuchadnezzar of all of these earthly kingdoms, gold, silver, but at the feet was a mixture of clay and iron and ultimately couldn't sustain the kingdoms that it was supporting. And the rock of Jesus brought destruction to all of those kingdoms, and judgment to all of those kingdoms. But when it comes to this vision, in contrast to the image that that Nebuchadnezzar saw, that Daniel interpreted, the risen king of heaven, guess what? Purifying, strong foundations, eternal foundations that will never be shaken. And then you have the voice like rushing waters Talking about him speaking with authority, speaking with power. I don't know if you've been in the presence of a powerful waterfall, not just, you know, a trickle down the coal, but a powerful, like Niagara Falls. It's deafening. It's deafening. It's dominating. And he's saying that Jesus speaks with authority, with power. And then the seven stars in his right hand. This looks at the sovereign rule over the churches. Yes, the churches are the, the uh, lampstands, and, and, and he rules over the churches. He's going to speak into the churches. He's the king of our lives. But he's also the king of the universe because in that culture, it goes way beyond the churches. The people with the coins for their lunch money would have said, Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. And he's the one who holds the stars. In fact, he created the universe. In fact, he sustains the universe. In fact, he's the one... Who alone is worthy of our worship so i'm not going to go up to the temple and throw some incense and say kaiser Curios. i'm going to say jesus is lord and i'm going to live for that even when it may lead to persecution as it did for christians in that age but the whole point is jesus is kurios jesus is lord and he's the one who rules the galaxies, and he rules human history, and he leads the church, and he's king over the church, and king over our lives, but he's our loving king we're going to see it in a moment. And then finally he says this, well not finally, two more, the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Well, the mouth is the organ of speech, and he's saying that when Jesus speaks, it's with sharpness. It's, it cuts and divides into the center of our being. In fact, again, the commentary from the book of Hebrews He speaks penetrating truth into our lives. The Word of God is alive and active. The Word that Jesus speaks is alive and active to the church. It's sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. It reveals the inner part of our lives, it reveals our attitude, it reveals our motivation, not just our actions. It speaks to us in our inner being. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Jesus' word is penetrating and it's powerful and it reveals our innermost person. And then finally he says face like the sun, the most dominant, glorious uh, element of creation, the sun that when it's bright you can't even look at directly. And it speaks of resplendent brilliance and glory, but it also speaks of personal blessing because what was in the Old Testament that when God turned his face, Numbers chapter 6, the high priestly prayer, when God turned his face towards you, it was to bless you. It was to enrich your life with grace and shalom. And so that sense of brilliance, but personal blessing, turning and showing his attentiveness and his care and his blessing in your life, all of that's involved. These are powerful, rich images. It's no wonder that when John saw all of them, he was just overwhelmed, and he was flat on his face. And that was his response, and yet God graciously, Jesus graciously reaches down and touches him and gives him instruction. Write and tell other people about this. I want to conclude this morning with two things that I hope we won't miss. Don't miss this. Have eyes to see Jesus in his heavenly glory, in his true identity, that unseen spiritual reality that you and I can't see with our physical eyes, but if we have eyes to see spiritually, don't, please don't miss this. He's the one alive and moving among his people. Did you notice that it says he was among the churches, one like a son of man, among the lampstands? He wasn't over the lampstands, looking down on the lampstands. He was among the lampstands. And if you read the next chapter, the first verse, it says he's walking among his church. He lives and moves among New Hope Kailua. He lives and moves among his people. He is, as we sang this morning, here with us. And that's why he can say, I know what you're going through. And that's why he can say to the churches, I know your hard work. I know your good heart. I know the way you're being persecuted. I know everything that's going on in your life. I also know where you need to be corrected, where this junk has started to seep into your church and into your life. But out of my heart of love, I want to correct that. I want you to change direction." But he knows, he knows, he knows. He knows what we're going through with the pandemic. He knows what we're going through with the financial challenges of our culture. He knows what we're going through with the political turmoil of the land we live in. He knows the particular situation of your life, whatever your circumstances are. He knows, he knows, he knows because he walks among us. The risen, glorified Jesus is in this room. And he's in your family. And he's in your life because he's among his people. Lay hold of that. And not only is he with us, he he loves us. As he walks among us, he says in a multitude of different ways, I love you, I love you. I'm the glorified King priest who who gave his life to set you free from your sins. I set you free from my from your sins by my blood. And I adopted you into my royal eternal family. You're, I'm the king priest, but you are my sons and daughters. You're part of this eternal kingdom that, is, that will rule with me over the new creation, that will serve the Father. I've given you gifts out of my heart of love for you. And yes, I know the personal circumstances of your life, and I can help you. I care about you. I can be your strength. I can be your solution. I can be your answer. In all of these ways, I love you, I love you, I love you. Have eyes to see the risen Jesus in all of his glory, but walking in your life and walking in our church, because that's who he is. That's the unseen. None of us saw him when we drove up this morning, (laughs) but he is here. And John peels back the windows of heaven and says, if you have eyes to see Jesus walking among you and how much he loves you, And who he is, and who he is to you, it will change your life. And it is continually changing our lives. The second thing, let's not miss from this passage, he is the risen, glorified Jesus who walks among his people with all of his glory, with all of his power, with all of his love. But he's also, don't miss this, the one who holds the keys. He's the one who holds the keys. Did you see what he said to John? Did you hear what he said to John? Do you hear what he says to us? I hold the keys. I hold the keys. I was dead, but I'm alive now, and I hold the keys to death. Think about that. When Jesus died on the cross... He submitted himself to all of the horrific powers of death. He allowed death to hold him captive. He died a bloody death on the cross. And they buried him in a tomb. But he allowed himself to be imprisoned, to be held captive by the power of death. Three days later, there was the greatest jailbreak the universe has ever seen. Jesus bust out of the prison of death. He rose from the dead. He kicked down the doors. And guess what? He took the keys. He took the keys to the prison of death. He holds the power over death and the grave. And that's why he says to John, Do not be afraid. Domitian may round you up. He may exile you. He may put some of your people to death. I hold the keys. The worst that can happen to you. You can die. But I hold the keys to life and eternal life. Thank you. Can we have an amen? So, what does that mean to us? Thankfully, I do not fear that Domitian or any political power is going to come into our church and come into my life and come into your life and round you up and throw you in prison. Could that happen in our lifetime? It could possibly happen. Let's not be naive. Many Christians face that every day. But it does mean this to us that as you grow old and your days get shorter, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus holds the keys. That if you get a really bad doctor's report, and like a friend of mine just got recently, his wife, three months to live because of the cancer report. He doesn't, she doesn't have to fear. Why? Jesus holds the keys. You might have a heart attack. We might be prone to some terrible car accident. But Jesus holds the keys. And yes, for loved ones who have gone ahead of us, Jesus holds the keys. He has the power to release people from the prison of death because he holds the keys to death. And that's why we need to see him for who he is, the one who walks among us, who knows us, who loves us, the one who holds the keys of death. And so whatever can happen in this life is nothing because he has all life-giving power, and he's ruling from heaven today as he walks amidst the midst of his people. Let's stand and praise him. Father, we stand this morning with grateful hearts, and our prayer is indeed that we would have eyes to see Jesus in his heavenly glory. Thank you, Jesus, that although we cannot see you with our eyes, that we are indeed in your throne room, and you are in our church, and you walk among your people with power, with glory, with unimaginable love. We look to you this day, Jesus, and we pray that you would continue to speak into our lives and bring that affirmation, bring that correction, bring that purification, bring all that we need because of your heart of love towards us. Thank you that you want the best for us and that when you speak, When you see into our lives and when you speak with penetrating power, it's always to build, to purify, to strengthen, to make whole, to make healthy. Because you have a heart of love for your children. And we pray, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts when we recognize that whatever may happen to us in this life, that you hold the keys. And that we belong to you. What a joy, what a delight to be your children. So Lord Jesus, we want to say again, You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our adoration. You're worthy of our everything. We pray these things in your name and for your purposes. Amen.